Well, good morning. Welcome again to Sunday School. If you would take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn to 2 Timothy chapter number 2. 2 Timothy chapter number 2. We'll be in there in a few minutes. Well, as Pastor said, this morning we're going to start a four-week Sunday School series, Lord willing, uh, entitled Islam and Biblical Christianity. And I formed what I'd like to use as a, a thesis, an an underlying idea that we're going to see throughout the entire series, and that's this. And that is that the purpose of these lessons is to help us understand Islam and what Muslims believe so that we can be better equipped to give them the gospel and to see them saved. And having better understood what they believe, practice, and believe about Christianity, It'll better help us to have conversations with them and our Muslim neighbors and lead them to placing um, their faith in Christ alone. Now, all of this is going to come with a quick disclaimer, and that's going to be this. The purpose of this Sunday School series is to equip us with the knowledge so that we can help those in our Muslim communities come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That said... None of the statements in this lesson are meant to be unloving towards Islamic people. Rather, and please listen to this, our goal is to simply provide a biblical perspective on this topic. That's our goal today. And so some of you may be um, questioning and wondering, why is this Sunday School series even necessary? Why have we taken time to prepare for something like this? And what I want to do to start off is give you a few facts. And I hope that today's um, lesson doesn't just seem like a bunch of useless facts, but rather it's knowledge that's going to equip you again for our purpose. And so here, here are some facts that I want you to consider. There are over 1 billion Muslims around the globe today as we stand or, or sit today. Islam now has the second largest number of followers in any religion in the world. Every year, 30 million people are born into a Muslim home. Consider this. A new mosque is opened up every week in the United States. I remember driving up um, to... um, to the academy up in Southington, and we, were, we actually were able to watch uh, a new mosque be, be built. And so we know that this is something that it's not just talk, it's not just a fact. We've seen this happen. One of the goals of Islam is to control the world by having the most adherence. And this is why you'll often see Muslims or Islamic people having very large families. That's one reason you'll see that. Another fact, we have all noticed that there are more and more Muslim people around us. Our Muslim communities are growing at a rapid pace. That's, that's just a fact now. And the, another unfortunate truth is that our Muslim neighbors do not have the biblical plan of salvation. They don't have the God of the Bible, and they don't have the Christ of the Bible either. According to the Bible, each and every person, Muslim person, if they do not repent and place their faith in Christ, 
Unfortunately, the only other alternative is a very real hell. We don't like to say that, we don't like to consider that, but that's the truth, and that's the purpose of these series, is because we have a heart for our Muslim community, and we want to make sure that even if this series rep represents just one Muslim person coming to the Lord, I think it'll, it'll be worth it all. There's an estimated 7.8 billion people in the world today. That's a lot of people. One billion of them are Muslim. These one billion people, again, are unfortunately lost without Christ in this very moment as we sit today. Unfortunately, many churches are afraid to teach about Muslims or, or even um, consider giving them the gospel simply because they don't have enough information about what they believe and they don't feel equipped to do so. And so again, that's why we're going to study today. You opened your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter number 2. We're going to read verse number 15, which by now should be a familiar verse to us. And another reason why we're going to be doing this series is because God's called us to show our, to study to show ourselves approved. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Also, in 1 Peter chapter number 3.15, you could turn there or I'll read it for you, but we are called to be ready to give an answer. The Bible says, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so I wonder if someone from the Muslim community were to ask you today, what is the reason for the hope that is in you? Would you be able to give them an answer that wouldn't offend them, but would rather um, pique their interest and, and make them want to have a conversation with you. Are you ready to give an answer in that way? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Let's go ahead and take a moment to pray, and we'll dive into some more things this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for the opportunity to consider this very important topic. Lord, I pray I would be led of your spirit. Please calm my nerves. Lord, and I pray that we would all understand um, what's being said, and that you, Lord, would equip us, really, at the end of the day, to better uh, fulfill your great commission here in Trumbull and the surrounding communities. We thank you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today, the main topic of our, of our series is going to be, what do Muslims, what does the Islamic community actually do? teach? What do they actually believe? And again, having a better understanding of what Muslims believe is going to help us better give them the gospel, again, in a way that won't offend them, but rather in a way that will help them understand where we're coming from as well. So first, we need to understand that Islam claims to be a universal religion for people everywhere, all races, all classes, with no barriers at all. It's considered a universal religion. And there are many groups, however, within Islam, but there's a notable unity within each of them. Some of the things that you'll find as a common theme or as a chord that goes throughout them is that they practice the same rituals 
all over the world. No matter where they are, there are rituals that will be practiced here um, and, and in other countries. They also pray the same way. They read and recite the same book, which we'll learn is called the Quran, and they use all the same prayers. Those are common things that you'll see no matter where you are in the Muslim community. Also, practically, they eat the same food and largely dress the same way. So there are universal things, even though there's a bunch of different groups, there are universal things that run as a cord in them all. Islam is made up of, of two main things, a body of beliefs, which they call iman, and a set of religious practices, which they call din or deen. In order to become a believer in the Muslim community, one must believe in the six main articles of Islam, and that's what we're going to be studying today, the six main articles of Islam. I also like to call them the core beliefs of the Muslim community. The first and perhaps the most important to them is going to be Allah. I'm sure we've all heard the word Allah, whether it be in one context or another. It is a familiar term to us. And Allah in the Muslim community is, is God. Allah is God to a Muslim person. Muslim belie Muslims believe in the existence of one God, again, whose name is Allah. Now, they vehemently reject the Christian idea of a trinity and consider it a great sin. Now, why would that be? Because they believe, as some other people believe, that we're worshiping three separate gods. We understand that that's not the case, but understand that Muslims believe in one true God. There is not this idea of a trinity within the Muslim community. Their belief in Allah is going to cover four main aspects. They have four main core beliefs about Allah himself. The first is going to be the Islamic creed. Perhaps you've heard this Islamic creed before, and that is this. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. This is the creed that all Muslims must believe and recite. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. This creed is taught to Muslims starting as children when they are very young. This is one of the core aspects of becoming a Muslim, is reciting this creed. And Muslims are taught to try to persuade Christians and Westerners to recite this creed, and it's considered a great victory if they do so. And we'll see this in our next lesson, but the basic idea is if you can get someone to, to recite this creed, you're pretty much declaring that they're a Muslim at that point. If they can get someone to recite that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, that person in their mind, and if they believe it in front of witnesses, that person then becomes a Muslim um, or is considered a Muslim in the Muslim community. So that's why this Islam, Islamic creed actually carries a lot of weight, and we'll, we'll see that more in the future. The second aspect of this is going to be Allah's, they call them excellent names. The name Allah is a name for God that dominates their scriptures, but there's a grouping of 99 other names that they have for Allah called the Asma Asuna, which means 99 most beautiful names of Allah. It's interesting, as we continue to study, 
we'll see that there are similarities between the Muslim community and, and what we believe as Christians. Obviously, we have many names that we would call God, wonderful, master, different things, but obviously this is, this is something quite different. A common practice is to recite these names with the aid of a rosary or prayer beads, perhaps similar to what um, a Catholic rosary or prayer bead would be. It is also believed that those who do this, those who recite the names of Allah, are going to be guaranteed entrance into heaven. So if you're a Muslim person and you choose to go through these names and recite them, there is a promise that you're going to enter paradise. Interestingly enough, however, this guarantee is not found in any of their scriptures, including the Quran itself. Another aspect is Allah's seven attributes. Muslims assign seven great and primary attributes to Allah. And as we consider these, I want you to consider if any of them sound familiar. The first one is life. A Muslim person believes that Allah has no beginning and no end. They believe that Allah himself is eternal. The second is knowledge. Muslims believe that Allah is omniscient, of course, meaning that he knows everything and that nothing is a secret to him. The third is power. A Muslim person will believe that Allah, if he wills, he can make stones and trees walk. He's that powerful. They also um, attribute one of the main attributes to Allah as his will, and that is that he permits good and evil to exist by his will. Anything good that happens, anything bad that happens, is by the will of Allah himself. Another attribute, the fifth attribute, is hearing. They believe that he hears without having any ears. And also another one is seeing. He can see, this is how, how powerful they believe Allah's sight is. They believe that he can see even a black ant on a black stone on a dark night. Obviously, for the Muslim community, most people wouldn't be able to see that, but they believe that their God, Allah, can see even that, um, that acutely. And then finally, the seventh aspect, or the seventh attribute, is speech. They believe that he can speak without a tongue. So these are the seven main attributes that the Muslim community will give to Allah himself. And then finally, the, the main and core thing that they believe about Allah is Allah's transcendence, and we'll explain that. And basically what that means is that unlike the Lord, Allah holds himself distant from man. You, can't, you can know Allah's law and will, so a Muslim person can understand what Allah wants from him, but never can a Muslim understand the person or character of who Allah is. He's a ruler. He's not a father or a friend. And one thing that we're going to see is there is a very real master-slave relationship within um, Islam. Whereas, compare that to the Christian relationship, father, son, and daughter. So it's an unfortunate thing, and, and we'll see that built upon um, in the future. Okay. The second main thing, moving on, there's, there's a lot of stuff to cover today, so we'll move on. The second main thing is going to be the angels. This is going to be the second 
main um, area of belief um, that a Muslim must believe. Um, it's considered a word that I can't quite pronounce. It's malakatuhu. Um, that's, their, that's the word that they use for the, the basic idea of the angels. And Muslims do believe in the existence of angels and spirits, which they call jinns. Um, and these jinns specifically are going to be demons, what, what we would consider demons at this point. They believe that the angels are sinless and will be raised on the last day, the final day of existence. Now, it's interesting. Um, they have a lot of beliefs regarding a certain particular angel, and that angel is going to be Gabriel. They believe that Gabriel played a huge part in the history of Islam, and that is, is that Gabriel translated all of the Quran. Again, the Quran is their, their scripture, their text. They believe that Gabriel translated all of all of the Quran to Muhammad over a 23-year time period. And we'll, we'll hear this name Muhammad a lot. Muhammad is um, one that's considered a great and mighty prophet in Islam. And so they believe that Gabriel translated the Quran to Muhammad. They believe that angels, the good ones, um, were created from light. And their purpose is to obey and carry out Allah's will and to pray for forgiveness of all the earth. But also consider this. In the Quran, it states that after Allah created Adam, that the angels were instructed to worship him. So we see that in the Islamic community, angels don't just worship God like they do in, our, in the Christian Bible text. We see that these angels are also commanded to worship man himself in some instances. Every person, get this, every person has an angel and a demon appointed over them in the Islamic community. These two angels have a purpose. They record man's sin and good works on his shoulder blades. And so you may ask me, do Muslims actually believe that, Brother Zach? Well, Yes, they do. And here's why. When concluding their prayers, even today, Muslims always turn to their right and to their left to greet these two angels. That is a practice that is done to this very day. Muslims also greet each other in the plural. They'll say, Asalam alakium, meaning peace be upon you and the angels beside you. The very main um, greeting that Muslims give each other plays into this very idea that not only are they greeting the Muslim person, they're also greeting both angels that are presiding over them. So this is absolutely something that isn't just in the past. This is something that the Islamic community believes today. Um, now, we talked about the good angels. Now we'll talk about the bad ones, which again they consider to be called jinn. And Allah created these evil spirits out of fire-free smoke. Fire-free smoke. These evil spirits, where do they dwell? They dwell in graveyards, empty houses, and by water, blood, and ashes. So they, the evil spirits dwell amongst the dead, which is interesting because there's a, there's a similarity there as well. And they also believe that these jinn... Um, are very harmful, and they take the harmfulness of these angels very seriously. Um, very seriously. And it's interesting to consider the fact 
that it seems like there's more of a focus on angels uh, in, the, in the Islamic community than there is in our Christianity. We're going to move on um, to the next major section of belief, and that's what they consider the books, just the books. And hear this. Muslims believe Allah gave 104 sacred books to mankind. 104 sacred books. And they say, well, okay, Brother Zach, where are they? Well, they believe that 100 of them were shared between Adam, Seth, Enoch, and Abraham, but all of these have been lost. So out of 104 of the sacred texts, 100 of them no longer in existence. They're gone. The remaining four of these books are the books of Moses, the Psalms of David, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Quran. The Gospel of Jesus Christ and the Quran. Now, they believe that the Quran, which is, again, is their main sacred text, was sent down from heaven where it existed from the beginning of time. So not only do they believe that Allah existed from the beginning of time, they believe that the Quran itself, the words, existed from the beginning of time. And the Quran is considered a divine book because the Prophet Muhammad, remember we just referenced him, the Prophet Muhammad, who was considered to be illiterate and uneducated, was miraculously able to read it and pass it on. So that's one of the main reasons why they believe the text is divine. Now, Muslims also claim that Allah um, has given them a two-edged sword. And again, does, does that sound familiar? A two-edged sword uh, for the cause of Islam in our day. They believe that that two-edged sword is, number one, the Quran, their text, and number two, oil, which is another word uh, for money in this case. Muslims are also taught that the Quran has been divinely protected against falsification. Again, I wonder if that sounds familiar. To me, this sounds similar to belief in the preservation of the scriptures. Preservation of the scriptures. And so it's interesting. There's, there's a, it seems like there's a lot of um, copying in, in the Muslim community as to the, as to the truth. And so they believe that the Quran has been divinely protected against falsification. Now, let's talk a little bit, just a little bit, about the form of the Quran the Quran is shorter than the New Testament itself. It's not, it's not a huge book. It's shorter than the New Testament itself, and it consists of only 114 chapters, which they call surahs. The chapters they call surahs, and it has a total of 6,239 verses in total. Again, only 114 chapters in the entire book. Now, those 114 chapters are divided into 30 sections that make it easier to memorize and recite during their 30 days of fasting. So they choose to break it down in a way that's going to help them um, memorize it. Because the Quran is hard to read, Muslims use a book called the Hadith, or the Hadith, which, is, um, which simply means traditions, to help interpret its meaning. Now here's something interesting. The Muslims have the Quran, which they consider their sacred text, but they also have traditional books that help them interpret the Quran. And I wonder again, does, does that sound familiar? They have a book that called the Hadith, which helps them interpret 
their Bible, which again is the Quran. Now, consider this. The Muslim community will often look down on the Bible because of this, because of its means of inspiration, having been produced by many men over many centuries. Now, obviously, we understand that not a single word of the Bible was given by man. Of course, it was given from the Holy Spirit to men. We understand how the Bible teaches that. Um, but they believe that the inspiration process of the Bible is too sloppy to be, um, to be respected and to be truly considered as something that they can, can even look into. Um, they believe that because the Quran was given directly from heaven, there was no middleman, well actually there was, Muhammad, no middleman that their sacred text is more divine, is more respectable than the Bible itself. The Quran, they say, was directly dictated from heaven, and so it must be superior because it's wholly divine. To all Muslims, the Quran is a book that must be revered. And this is something that I actually found interesting. Um, the amount of respect that a Muslim person will give to their Bible. They believe it is to be, number one, kissed, placed upon the forehead as an act of respect. The Quran is never to be laid on the ground. The Quran is never to be below, held below your waist. Here's something else that I found interesting. It must, must be printed and published in a dignified form. The Quran must be hardbound with a decorated cover at, that's print, <clears throat> excuse me, a decorated cover and printed with a dignified script. So not only does it have to be hardbound, there has to be a, a dignified script around it. Nothing but verses, verses and verse numbers can be inside the borders of the Quran. And this is something that we're going to see um, play into future lessons, but we'll mention it here. When you're witnessing to someone in the Muslim community, you're going to want to use a Bible that doesn't have any writing in it. Obviously, we write in our Bibles. I have my Bible here. There's writing right, right in the page that I'm in. But they consider writing in, in any type of scripture to be very disrespectful. And so if you're going to be um, witnessing to a Muslim with a Bible that has a lot of writing in it, that could be an immediate turnoff to someone. So there's a lot of practical things that we're going to see that are going to help us witness to someone. And that's just one thing that I wanted to mention because we were considering that. The Quran also must be placed on the highest shelf and can never have another book placed on top of it. So again, why are we going through all that? Well, it's just to help us understand that there is a great respect for the Quran in the Muslim community. Here's another interesting fact. Unlike the Bible, the Quran is untranslatable and must be expressed in Arabic. Now, how different is that from, from us today? Here we are, a lot of us have, have a, a burden to see the Bible translated into as many languages as is possible because we want everyone to be able to understand the Bible, to be able to read it, to read about the Savior, to be able to grow. And yet, in Islam, the Quran is untranslatable and must be expressed in Arabic. Now, what are the consequences of that? Well, the main one is that if you want to read the Quran, you have to learn Arabic. 
and from what I understand, it's not the most, um, it's not the easiest um, language to learn. But that's something very interesting. It may not and cannot be translated. You must read it in Arabic. So that's one of the, one of the big differences um, on there. Moving on, the next main topic, um, main core beliefs, is what the Mus Muslim community considers the prophets. Now, Muslims speak of two classes of prophets. There's the Nabi and there's the Rasu. The Nabi are any is any prophet inspired by God. That's who the Nabi are. Now, there's also the Rasu, which is a messenger or an apostle. So there's two main types of prophets there. And they believe that there are 28 messengers and prophets that are mentioned um, in their Bible, their Quran, by name. And there are six major and core prophets that they believe in, and they've given um, almost nicknames or, or major titles to. The first one is Adam, and they call him the chosen one, Adam. And then we have Noah. They call him the preacher. And they have Abraham, who they consider the friend of God, which is interesting because we also consider Abraham titled the friend of God. They have Moses, who they consider God's spokesperson. Does that sound familiar? They have Jesus. Now hear this. The title they give Jesus is the word of Allah. The word of Allah. Isn't that interesting as we consider Christ to be the word of God? And then finally, we have Muhammad, who is considered the messenger of Allah. Now, unfortunately, according to Islam, Jesus Christ was just another prophet to Israel. Now, again, we're going to talk more about this, but this is something we have to understand. According to Islam, Jesus Christ was just a prophet to Israel. He's not the son of God. Um, he's not divine. He is just another prophet given to Israel. Now, Muhammad, we mentioned him, and we're going to continue to mention his name because he is a core of the Islamic faith. Muhammad is the only major prophet not also mentioned in the Old and New Testament. There's going to be a lot more that we're going to say about the prophets, but we're going to, we're going to leave, leave the prophets there and move on to the next thing, which is going to be the next major um, core beliefs is going to be the day of resurrection and judgment. And this is interesting because we've considered things all the way from, from the beginning of what the Muslim community believes. Now we're going to consider what they believe about end times, their, their eschatology at this point. And so Muslims believe in heaven, hell, and the day of judgment. So do we. The last day will be heralded by three trumpets blasts at a time known only to Allah. Does that sound familiar? The first blast will, will be sounded and will terrify all creatures in heaven and earth. The second blast, all creatures in heaven and earth will die at the second blast. And then finally, that third blast they refer to, which will happen 40 years later, all people will be raised and there will be a time of judgment. Now, during that judgment period, each person will be examined from his own book of deeds. And this is the time that you want to pay attention. Allah will weigh all the words and deeds. One pan, or, or uh, if you're considering the, the two pans, the, the weights, one pan will be over paradise, which they consider heaven, 
and the other pan will be over what they consider to be hell. Those whose good works outweigh their bad will be given a book with all their good deeds in it, and they will dwell, in, dwell with Allah in paradise forever. Now, Brother Zach, what does that mean? That means that at the end of the day, your good works and your bad works are going to be weighed, and if your good works are, are heavier, you're going to go to heaven, and if your bad works aren't, you're going to go to hell. And that's why we can assert um, that um, Islam is very much a works-based salvation community. Now, they believe that when you go to heaven, it's interesting. What, what do they believe about heaven? How does that look like? What does that look like? Well, they believe that they'll be by flowing rivers, that they'll be reclined on, on silken couches, simply praising Allah. Um, they believe that they'll be enjoying heavenly foods um, and drinks, and they'll be accompanied by, by maidens and, and things of this. And so the, the idea of paradise is made um, to be very, very um, attractive, I guess you could say, to the Muslim person. It's something that they want to achieve. It's something that they are going to try to get to. Now, on the other hand, those whose scale is light will be rejected by Allah and be sent to hell in eternal perdition, which is described as this. You will drink from a boiling spring and eat bitter, thorny plants. Now, I don't know about you, but I certainly wouldn't want to drink from a boiling spring or eat bitter, thorny plants. And again, that's why the idea of paradise is made to seem so attractive to the Muslim person. Hell is the destiny for all who do not accept Islam. That, that is the core belief. Hell is the destiny for all who do not accept Islam. Again, the main thing that we can take from that is that we can understand that um, Muslim and the Islamic religion is very much a works-based salvation. Now, finally, and the last thing, the last major core and belief and doctrine that we're going to consider today is the idea of predestination. Now, Muslims believe that Allah is the direct author of both good and evil. We talked about how one of the main attributes that they believed um, about Allah uh, is his will. That was one of his main attributes. Again, that comes into here where they believe that all good and all bad comes from Allah himself. Islamic predestination is not, however, at all like Bible predestination. Of course, we understand that uh, the fact that God predestinates us to be conformed into the image of Christ, that's not what we're talking about here. In the Muslim community, it's rather an inescapable fatalism, which basically means that once, um, once Allah has declared something, no matter what, it's going to happen. It is believed that after 40 days in the womb, this is interesting, it's believed that after 40 days in your womb, an angel writes out your whole life story uh, to your day of death, which is written on your forehead at birth. He then also records if you're going to heaven or hell. So they believe that literally while you're in the womb, your entire life story has already been given to you. There's no, there's no chance about it. Your entire life story has been given to you, and you're already predestinated to heaven or hell, um, right from your womb. There's no, there's no chance of, of changing that either way. Luck 
chance, accident, misfortune, and failure are all ascribed to the will of Allah. So if there's something that seems like, oh, that was a, a lucky miss, or oh, that was fortunate, or oh, that's misfortunate, it's really not. They all consider it to be, oh, that's what Allah willed. That's, that's what he said. That's, that's, what, that's what happened. And so whatever Allah says is going to happen. That's their idea of predestination. Now, I know it probably sounded like we threw a lot at you today, and we did. There's a lot of things to consider. Hopefully, you were able to take some notes, and hopefully, you understood that as we're learning these things, what we're doing is we're adding tools to our tool belt, which we're going to be able to use to help win the Muslim communion. And you, say, you may say, Brother Zach, well, I don't feel like I'm necessarily prepared to go and, and give a Muslim person the gospel. Well, that's why you have to come back next week and to continue to learn. Again, this is going to be a four-week series, uh, Lord willing. Again, today we considered what Muslims believe, what their actual belief system is. Now, we understand that in any religion, there's a belief system, but that also then carries out into uh, a practice system, what they actually do, what they actually practice. And we'll understand that there are a lot of times there are traditions and, and belief, a belief system that people may hold, but it doesn't always carry into their practices or what they actually do. And so next week, we're going to consider the practices, the actual actions that flow from these core beliefs that we've talked about. And again, that's going to be another notch on our belt, which is going to be able to equip us to give the Muslim community the gospel. I hope that this has at least whet your appetite uh, towards this series. And I hope that you've learned a lot today. And I hope that it's an encouragement to you that, okay, now I have some more understanding. I understand a little bit more about what I'm dealing with here, and I'm looking forward to learning more. So on that note, let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to, to bless the rest of the day. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for the opportunity we've had to, um, yes, look into your word, Lord, but also to consider what our uh, Muslim community believes. Lord, I pray that you would help us to never have any anger against our Muslim community, Lord, but I pray that you would rather give us a burden to see them saved and to come to the saving knowledge of Christ and to be washed in the blood of the Lamb, Lord. And I pray that as we continue um, to not only look into your word, but to understand what they believe, that you would equip us to give them the gospel, Lord, and that they would be saved. And of course, Lord, we pray that as we equip ourselves, we pray that this would result and seeing one of um, our Muslim friends come to the Lord. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name I pray.